according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Turning your Bibles as we get started this morning to Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20, we'll pick up where we left off on Wednesday in our study on calls to the ministry. We've had This is the third of our three developments on calls to the ministry, and we should wrap this up here this morning. Uh, and then the summary and conclusion uh, with a couple of points there as well. And so that'll bring our doctrinal study to a close. We'll be ready to move on to the third and final paragraph of Philippians chapter 1, the, the blessings of to live as Christ and to die as gain, and the perspective that's, uh, that's contained there in uh, verses 18 and following. But for this morning, Acts chapter 20, as we talk about finishing the course and uh, what is expected of us in our ministry pursuits. As always, remember God is spirit and we must worship Him in spirit and in truth. Let's take a moment for silent prayer to give each believer priest the privilege of preparing your heart for eternal truth. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do come before you this morning once again thankful for the truth of your word. Thankful, Father, for your grace provision that you have supplied a lampstand for, uh, for our benefit, Father, that there is a body of believers hungry for, uh, for consistent Bible teaching. And here in this lampstand, Father, we have a gifted pastor teacher that's uh, studied and prepared to feed the flock. And in all these things, Father, we recognize that um, it's getting more and more rare in, these, in this generation. A lot of places around this country that I don't have pastors anymore. So, Father, we just give you the praise and glory for what you provided. We thank you for the privilege of having a training ministry, for the joy and delight in sending young men forth and uh, seeing what you do. And, Father, in all these things, we just give you the praise and the glory. So for this morning, Father, we thank you for this study, and we ask for your blessing upon it. Open the eyes of our understanding that we would recognize not only the truth of this word, but the application that's expected for each one of us. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. So under uh, Roman numeral 2, we've had, uh, as I say, points A, B, and C for the three primary developments. We started with principles of ministry calling under point A, and we had five of those. We moved on to illustrations of ministry calling, and we had five of those as we talked about Moses and a couple of different illustrations, and then Joshua and Timothy, plus uh, many of us penciled in Samuel as well. Uh, as the illustration of a young man in the next generation uh, following the old man in the process there. Thirdly uh, is David, fourth was Jesus, and five was the apostles, including uh, a variety of apostles. All the apostles weren't cookie cutter. They weren't all the same. And in some cases they were mortal enemies. In the case of, of, of a zealot, for example, can you imagine here's a zealot uh, working for the overthrow of the, of the Roman government? and uh, processes there. Anyway, uh, so we had uh, fishermen, a tax collector, a bounty hunter, uh, other examples like Simon or Judas or other examples that we could continue to, uh, to deal with. Under point C then we moved on to the dangers and warnings of ministry calling and this was the longest of the developments because uh, we have seven points as we've been seeing, the first of which was discrediting the ministry, a warning that comes in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. I won't go back and review what we've taught, I'm just putting them up here on the screen. The uh, discrediting of the ministry, and uh, Paul gave a very serious warning there. The placing of self-interest over the interest of Jesus Christ, Philippians chapter 2. And uh, that'll uh, not only disqualify you, but that'll bounce you out of ministry in a heartbeat if, uh, if you have your priorities uh, in the wrong area. Thirdly, entering ministry hastily, which is kind of a corollary to uh, entering in, or the opposite of uh, dragging your feet, or making excuses, or going too slow. And so uh, whether it's too fast or too slow, it's both wrong in, uh, in this sense. 1 Timothy 5.22, of course, is the passage that warns against uh, laying hands on a man too hastily and thereby sharing his guilt. And then uh, Luke 9, uh, plus some parallel text in Matthew and Mark that speak to the uh, putting your hand to the plow and looking back, making all these excuses. Well, I would follow you, Lord, but first you know, allow me to go bury my father and uh, aspects there. So um, we have those as dangers and warnings. 
Uh, Wednesday night we were looking at 1 Corinthians 9 and viewing the hypocritical disqualification, that is uh, preaching to others and then you yourself being disqualified in, uh, in that passage where Paul says uh, you have to compete according to the rules and in the Olympic Games if you're cheating then you, know, you, uh, you get disqualified and you don't win the, the wreath. And, and in the Olympic Games that's just an earthly illustration for an earthly a perishable wreath. What we're racing for is eternal. And the idea if we cheat or we break the rules or we don't compete according to Scripture, according to what God designed, then why do we expect that we're going to uh, stand on a podium at some point and receive the, the crowns that the Bible uh, describes? And so that's uh, where you run in such a way so as to win. You box in such a way as to, as to punch your opponent. <laughs> the purpose of boxing is to punch your opponent, not just uh, you know, beat the air or do a lot of motion. And that's, uh, I think some Christians confuse busyness with ministry because they're so busy doing stuff and uh, they're very, very busy at what they're doing, but what are they really doing? Are they, they're just beating the air. They're not really connecting uh, in any meaningful way. And uh, I think there's a lot that you can illustrate there with respect to that. Um, we, as we're running out of time Wednesday night, we got to 2 Timothy 4.10 and the example of Demas uh, having loved this present age. And there's a danger there and a warning there. And that's part of the snares. This present age that we're not to love. We're not to love the world or the things of the world. It puts ourselves in an adversarial enmity position with, with the God who reconciled us. The God, I mean, we used to be enemies before we were saved, and then we get saved, and now we're no longer enemies. Now we're His children. Why would we then, as His children, put ourselves back on a footing that is an adversarial footing, that is an enmity footing? Friendship with this world is hostility or enmity against God. Why would we put ourselves there in that kind of thing with friendship with the world or loving this present age. And that was the ministry uh, snare that took Demas away. And he walked away from his, uh, who knows, he walked away from his training ministry, walked away from his ordination, walked away from placement wherever. And, uh, and whatever he ended up doing in later years in Thessalonica, we haven't got no idea. Scripture doesn't tell us. And uh, I don't think, I'm not aware of any church fathers that addressed it or traditions or anything that came up with uh, Demas later in the, in the first century. All right, which gets us now to point seven and our final uh, danger and warning of ministry calling. And this is the danger of not finishing the course. The danger of not finishing the course. And this is sad when a, a preacher or minister, an evangelist, any believer pursuing any ministry. Remember, I'm trying to expand this beyond just simply pastors, right? Trying to expand this to everybody because each one of us, we have gifts, we have ministries, we have effects. And so you know, plug this in, put, put your own ministry in there as a whatever, okay? Whatever your ministry is as a deacon, as a Sunday school teacher, as whatever you're doing uh, in ministry as unto the Lord, um, this is a danger, not finishing the course. And uh, so in Paul's farewell message here in Acts 20, uh, the key verse what I'm looking for here is verse 24, but obviously there's a, a much larger context to this in his farewell message. You know, this is a, a place that he'd been at for three years, and, and uh, when it came time to say his goodbyes, he couldn't even, he knew that if he went into Ephesus itself that he would uh, be delayed and it would, it would take too long. So from the port of Miletus, he summoned them. He said, you guys come to me, and I'll tell you what I need to tell you, and we'll say what needs to be said, and then I can uh, get right back on the boat and, and, uh, and get out of here. <laughs> so... Um, from Miletus, it says in verse 17, he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. Now pay attention to that because those elders in verse 17 are going to be called overseers in verse 28. And uh, when they had come to him, he said to them, you yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia, how I was with you the whole time. And the benefit of tr having training ministries within a local church is that there's the public witness of everything. The people see what's happening. The elders see what's happening. The members see what's happening. And it's not, uh, it's not just this mysterious thing where a young man goes off to seminary and comes back four years later and you wonder, who is this guy? Is he the same guy we used to know four years ago? Did he come back with a different doctrine? Did he come back with uh, uh, some kind of strange view? <laughs> All right. Uh, with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility, with tears, with trials, which came upon me through the plots of the Jews. And so it wasn't a bed of roses. It was, there was tough things that happened. 
Uh, he calls them here uh, tears and trials. And uh, the more we see that Paul expresses these things, the more we have to uh, either recognize that Paul was just a, a blubbering baby crying all the time, or that this is a legitimate circumstance with respect to the, the conflict that happens uh, under, under uh, ministries where the Word of God is put first and foremost. And uh, the, the plots of the Jews, uh, the tears and the trials through the plots of the Jews included multiple imprisonments. And, and at least two, and I think we can prove three separate imprisonments during his Ephesus, uh, that three-year Ephesus time frame. And then he said, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house. And so we have the aspect here. And this is all what leads up to not finishing the course because there would be any number of excuses along the way where Paul could just throw up his hands and say, that's it, I'm done. It's not worth it. And uh, yet he did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable. Notice that? It doesn't say popular. It says profitable. <laughs> and that's the problem. You get ministries today and they cross off the word profitable and they write in the word popular and that's how they run things. And the only thing they preach is what's popular and so it, you know, strokes the ego and makes the, puffs up the people. They get all happy. The money rolls in and there they go. But no, shrinking from declaring to you anything that was profitable. Teaching you publicly and from house to house. I love that too. I use that passage as well in various ministry considerations. Here we are this morning. This is public. Here we are this morning, the public ministry, because we're assembled, we're in church. It's, it's in front of everybody here uh, in, the, in the church family preaching publicly. Okay? But there's also a house-to-house ministry. It's more personal, it's more private, it's more um, involved in the shepherding uh, as a pastor would do. All right. Um, Getting on down, verse 21, solemnly testify both the Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, bound by the Spirit, I am on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. And this became a snare. This became a problem. And he had other brothers telling him, don't go to Jerusalem, don't go. He had prophets telling him, don't go to Jerusalem. Agabus said, if you go, he said, give me your belt here. And he tied him up and said, uh, this is what the Holy Spirit says when you get to uh, to Jerusalem. Not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. Okay? So you can take that one or two different ways. (laughs) And uh, there's bonds there, don't go, or there's bonds there, go and accept the bonds. And uh, aspects there. All right. But I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself, And this is what is communicated in Philippians chapter 1. To live as Christ, to die as gain. That uh, when it comes to choosing or what to root for or what to hope for, you know, you're flipping a coin, am I going to live or am I going to die? And you're not sure which side you want that coin flipped to land on because you know, dying is, is all positive. There's, there's no downside to dying. It's, it's being face to face with Jesus Christ. And so this is uh, what he's communicating here. I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. And so the benefit is, if he is martyred, if he is put to death, all right, on this occasion when he arrives in Jerusalem, if this is the, the event of his death, and we know that it's not, but if it is, Paul is able to celebrate that and say, look, this is all positive. This means that I'm going to finish my course in faith, (laughs) okay? That I'm going to finish my course, that I'm going to die a winner, that I'm going to go out, I'm going to finish my course, I'm going to end the course of my apostolic ministry on positive volition and serving the Lord. And what could be better than that, all right? You know, if if in particular you've, you know what the snares are, you know what your weaknesses are, you know what your sin nature is prone to, you know what might happen down the road if you were to plunge into darkness, well then praise God if He keeps that from happening, huh? Okay? And oh, you know, it's so short, and oh, you know. And, and, and you wonder at some point, and, and different pastors die at different ages, but you know, some that, that died younger 
And, and people say, oh, well, think about all the ministry they didn't have or what was in front of them. Or we, we, we don't know that. It could have been something hideous coming up. And the Lord overruled and didn't let that happen. <laughs> all right? And because, uh, you know, that pastor would have gone off three deep ends maybe and, and would have exploded all kinds of things in his marriage and family and flock. And God in His grace overruled that. We don't know. God does. And that's it. So when he says that, uh, that I may finish my course, that's priority number one. And the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly. And so, verse 25, now behold, I know that all of you, see here's the key, his ministry in Ephesus is over. What does that mean? These guys are now stepping up. They're going to have ministry. And remember, these are the elders in Ephesus. And if Ephesus is the origin of Philippians, then this is the crowd where some of them have right reasons and some of them have wrong reasons. Okay? This is the crowd where some of them are going to be preaching for wrong motivations, thinking to cause Paul distress. So I know, uh, behold, all of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom will no longer see my face. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. In other words, he can wash his hands clean. He says, look, I didn't dodge any doctrine. I taught everything. I taught the whole council. If there was something that I ducked, then that's on me. And, but he says, I didn't duck anything, so it's all on you. You have to make the application. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. Then he goes on to say, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock. So these elders have to look out for themselves. That makes sense. Because half of them are preaching for wrong motivation. <laughs> All right? They've got to they gotta recognize that. They've got to deal with that. And then they can look out for the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. See? I told you the elders in verse 17 are called overseers in verse 28. And their prime function is to shepherd, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. That's why this is the chapter we go to when we teach elders, overseers, pastor, teachers. We've got to teach the, the different functions of the gifts, the offices, and the ministries. All right. Um, there's other aspects on this as well. Like I say, verse 24 is the key verse. He does say, After my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. So as one ministry closes, somebody else is stepping up into ministry. As one faithfully finishes his course, remember it's a snare to not finish the course, but what happens when somebody does finish the course, somebody else is going to just grab that baton and, and carry it forward. Okay, like a relay race. They're taking the baton and they're going to go forward in the next generation. And so I commend you to God and to the word of His grace. This is the passage I gave to Bob and Elvira when they left town. Uh, I commend you to God and to the word of His grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. And that's anyone that, that departs out into ministry, anyone from Pastor Cliff to Pastor Dan to anyone they're, they're trained, they're equipped, they're prepared, and it's going to be the Word of God and His grace that's going to sustain them in every ministry moving forward. All right, and so we see it there. All right, over to 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 18. First and Second Timothy have several references to finishing the course, fighting the good fight. All right, and this we uh, were in this chapter previously when we were talking about faithfulness. Ministries are awarded on the basis of faithfulness. Uh, in verse 12 it says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because He considered me faithful, putting me into service. Uh, th- I don't think anyone else, any human, would have considered Paul faithful. But God did. Even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor. <laughs> so we've got things in our past and we think, well, that disqualifies me. 
I'll never be in ministry. I, God can never use me. And God looks at us and He knows exactly what He can use. And there it is. Anyway, it's faithfulness that opens doors for ministry. And then um, down to verse 18. This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight. And so we have this as an expectation. The old man is urging the young man to fight the good fight, to finish the course, to endure all things. As it says in verse 19, keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. You've got to acknowledge the reality for what it is. I'm glad that I saw it for what it is. My childhood pastor was out of the ministry when I was ordained. He was not eligible to take part in my own ordination. Okay, One of them was, one of them wasn't. And uh, because at that time, one of them uh, was uh, no longer a pastor of a church and was no longer in ministry. He was working hard to recover from what he was recovering from and to restore his marriage and thank God, by the grace of God, that happened. And they had seven more years in their mar- marriage until, until she went to be with the Lord. And then uh, he had seven more years beyond that as a widower uh, in the ministry. And uh, praise God for that. And those were the things I got to see as a teenager and I got to see in my young 20s. And I got to see um, a pastor uh, blow it and lose everything. Okay? And Timothy has seen this. Timothy knows who Paul's talking about here. The some that have uh, uh, rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan so that they will be taught not to blaspheme. You know, and you look at that and you think, wow. (laughs) And Jesus told Peter, Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you. Okay? Now imagine what this church age is about. This is the intensified stage of the angelic conflict. The dispensation of satanic sifting. And part of the discipline when God delivers you over like this is, uh, is horrendous. All right. So fight the good fight. Finish the course. Uh, chapter 6. And um, Oh, bummer. I didn't include this, did I? I was going to put this passage in uh, Dangers and Warnings, and I failed. All right, so let's, uh, let's add it now. Um, <laughs> all right, the, uh, there's friction here, and what, what happens is money gets into the thing. Um, verse 5. Constant friction between men of depraved mind, deprived of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. They're looking at the ministry and thinking, wow, that's a racket, I can make some money there. And uh, the fact is, uh, godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. And the great gain is eternal. The great gain is not uh, secular or financial or or, uh, earthly money. We brought nothing into the world so we cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. You know, and this is the prescription for contentment in ministry. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. And so there we have it, all right? Is it, is it a sin to be rich? No, it's not a sin to be rich. But if you want that, why do you want that? What do you intend to use those riches for? Is this a ministry? Do you believe you have the gift of giving? Do you believe this is the ministry pursuit that God will put you in? Uh, Otherwise, uh, let other people deal with that. (laughs) That's their gift. That's their calling. That's their snare. The prosperity test is harder than the adversity test. All right. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. And some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. And so there's a, there's a progression, and the, the verbs here for desire keep intensifying. And so um, those who want to get rich in verse 9 is one thing, but then those that are longing for it in verse 10 uh, is another thing. And so it's intensified as uh, these verses progress. They've wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. And so it says it's a slippery slope, it's a road, but once you step on that road, very quickly you find your way down that road. And uh, you compromise once 
in, uh, for whatever. You compromise your spiritual values for financial pursuits. And it's easier to do it the next time and the next time and the next time. And the next thing you know, you've made all these decisions instead of seeking first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and allowing all these things to be added unto you, you've been seeking first the, uh, the, the earthly money, the, the, the almighty dollar, and then, uh, and then trying to squeeze in a little bit of, a little bit of religion while you're you know, on the side, when, here and there when you can, you know, and uh, try to fit in a little bit of, of religion to go with your, your pursuits. All right. And you've wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Verse 11, but flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue. There's that tandem, that flee and pursue. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. Now you know the day you got saved, you received eternal life. Have you taken hold of it? What does that mean to take hold of eternal life? We taught this in Galatians, by the way. Taking hold of eternal life. To which you were called, and you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. You know, ordination is a a serious event. And when the hands are laid on you and you're making that good confession, that's why baptism is another such event. It's a public testimony. It's a witness. And when you make that confession you can expect there's going to be an increase in your uh, angelic conflict. So, fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. And you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who, notice what Jesus did, testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate. So here's Jesus Christ testifying, and we've taught this, the doctrine of confession is more than just getting back in fellowship. <laughs> 1 John 1, 9 is not the only confession application. Homologeo has several different usages. Jesus wasn't getting back into fellowship after a time of carnality. What was Jesus doing when he made his confession? What was Timothy doing when he made his confession in the presence of many witnesses? Jesus made his before Pontius Pilate. That you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Are you going to finish your course? Are you going to fulfill your ministry? Or if, uh, if Caesar comes in here and puts a gun to your head and says, deny the faith, what are you going to do? Okay. Are we headed that direction? Is that persecution on the way in this country? in the land of the free, in the home of the brave. Oh wait, we don't sing that anymore. Okay? It's part of that national anthem. That's, that's old school. That's going away. Okay? What happens when our freedom is gone? Are we going to finish the course? Second Timothy chapter 2. Verse 1 says, You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Not in your own strength, not in your own wisdom. It's all about grace. The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses. Timothy's training ministry was a local church training ministry. He learned on the job. It was a part of traveling with Paul and uh, serving where Paul served in, in these things. Entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. This, by the way, shows us the distributed nature of of seminary, the distributed nature of local church ministry. The fact that Paul trained the men that were with him and Timothy trained the men that were supposed to train the men that are with him and those men are going to be equipped to train the men that are within them and it just spreads and spreads and spreads and spreads like the greatest uh, multi-level marketing thing you ever heard of. Okay, And every pastor, every lampstand should be the place of training. Paul doesn't say anywhere in here, by the way, if you've got a young man you think might be a pastor, send him to Rome where the bishop of Rome can uh, give him the appropriate apostolic succession and, and uh, he can be a, you know, a Catholic priest with the right kind of an ordination. doesn't say that. He doesn't say go send him to train under Peter or go send him to train under Barnabas. He says you train him. You train him. And you train them to be trainers of others. See, and so uh, that's what we see here. 
Entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And so Ralph trained me and I trained Cliff and Dan and I expect those men are going to train men. They're going to send people back to me to train them. You train them. That's what you were trained to do. Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. That goes with the territory. Part of the job description. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. And that's why you pray hard. If you've got a pastor that's bivocational, that's still working for a secular employment, pray hard and say, Father, what do we need to do? What do we need to do to obey this verse? What do we need to do to get our pastor out of the workforce? All right. Now, it may not happen, but we still want to be praying about it. And even if it never happens, we're going to keep praying about it every single day until it does. And we say, Father, is this your will? Are we in your will? Are we out of your will? What do we need to do? And uh, I tell you, and, and I know we're, we're in difficult times, and I know that it is what it is. And when I pull up my list of uh, churches and, and ministries, it'd be interesting to go through and color code how many of those pastors are full-time supporting and how many are not. Right. The um, and a lot of them I just don't know, but a lot of them I do know, and it's uh, it is a ratio in in the direction of of uh, secular employment in the in the tent making capacity for most of those pastors. All right, so uh, finish your course. We don't want to fall short of it. The uh, verse five: If anyone competes as an athlete. He does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. So that goes along well with uh, what we talked about before in, in point five. That goes along very well parallel to 1 Corinthians 9, 25 through 27. All right, so finish the course. We're here to please Jesus Christ. And we don't want to quit. We don't want to stop too soon and, uh, and just you know, walk away from it or give up or say, well, that's good enough. That's good enough. I've done enough. I've done my time. Somebody else can do it now. Okay? And we get this attitude that, well, because I've done more than somebody else, then I'm content with what I've done. Is Jesus content with what you've done? What has Jesus called you to do? What are the works that He's prepared beforehand that you should walk in them? And if, you know, the race doesn't stop until the finish line, you don't choose your own finish line and say, well, okay, I'm the winner because this is my finish line. Here I am. Okay? All right, and so we see it there. Uh, the last reference comes in chapter 4 and verse 7. This is the chapter that's frequently used as the charge during an ordination service. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead by His appearing and by His kingdom. Preach the word be ready in season and out of season. If you don't feel like it, okay? Most believers, they wake up on a Sunday morning and if they don't feel like it, they don't go to church. Does the pastor have that option? In season and out of season, whether you want to or not. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. And it's interesting too because people say, well, you know, so-and-so, he He's not a good teacher, but he's a good preacher. Or, well, he's not a good preacher, but he's a good teacher. They're all the same. Don't think it's a style issue. Because you have preaching right there. The first word of verse 2 is preach, and the last word is teach. Between preach and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. So you stay faithful. You stay faithful. And if they decide that they want the ear tickler instead of you, well then, go where the Lord takes you because these guys just fired you. All right? But you stay faithful. Because you, because these guys, these ear tickling people, they're going to turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. Yeah, that's why cats are so cool. You can you, know, you get a cat and you start tickling the ears or under the chin and they just start purring and they just start arching the back and they get all snuggly with you. Okay? That's uh that's the that's the imagery there for the ear tickling believers. 
that they want their pastor to, to, to do that. And then they can start purring and feel good about themselves. And that's not the ministry. All right. So they're going to turn aside uh, their ears from the truth. They will turn aside the myths. But you be sober in all things. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. And this is that's an interesting phrase too because um, you know if you don't have an evangelist for years and years I didn't have an evangelist. If, if you don't have one, then you've got to do that yourself, don't you? Until God brings you one. Okay? I asked for years and years for God to bring me one. He brought me four. <laughs> so thank you, Lord. All right. It works out well. All right. Fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. You know what those drink offerings were? Taking that cup and just pouring it out. You know what that was about in the Old Testament? The drink offering that went with the blood sacrifices? All right. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me. Here's, here's, this is, in my mind, this is the easiest crown any believer can win. Everybody in this church ought to have this crown. Not only to me, but unto all who have loved His appearing. Okay? Here, there, or in the air, right? Every day we're expecting the coming of Jesus Christ. Every day we're loving the appearing of Jesus Christ. Day by day, moment by moment, we are so in love with that idea that Jesus can come today that this is, uh, this is a pretty easy crown to win. <laughs> I expect every member of Austin Bible to be wearing this for all eternity. Loving His appearing. Alright, so not finishing the course is a snare and it's a danger and it's a warning. So in conclusion then, let me give you a couple of key points here for the conclusion. An A and a B. When it comes to the call to ministry, because some of us are praying about it. Some of us have already answered that call and we're in a ministry now. But we're considering additional calls that we may add to a ministry pursuit with another ministry pursuit. We may pursue multiple ministries in different ways. Uh, But others are no ministry of any kind right now, but want to be thinking about it. Starting to get kind of convicted that, you know, all this teaching probably means I should do something with it. (laughs) Maybe, uh, uh, you know, uh, I've yet to search the scriptures and find the the ministry of, of pew sitting, okay, bench warming or whatever it might be. Um, no, we're, we're being equipped for the work of service. And the work of service is not just sitting there doing nothing. Okay? What is the ministry? So, two things I want to say. Two broad kind of summary statements here. First of all, the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. The gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. Irrevocable. Without repentance. Romans eleven nineteen. We may fail and be disqualified for a season, but restoration of such a one is always the objective and reaching forward is always expected. And I think this is important because uh, we all have failures and we've all failed in the past and we're all going to fail again in the future. And maybe not in a great big glorious spectacular way, but at least in some kind of a way. We're all going to fail, we're all going to sin, we're all going to fall short at some point And what we don't want to do is just throw up our hands and say, well, then that's it. I'm done. I've I've ruined it. I'll never, God will never use me ever again. Okay? That's not true. Even if we are removed for a season, that's not eternal. There will be a a restoration. God gave us uh, Galatians 6.1 for a reason. You who are spiritual, restore such a one. Restore such a one. And you remember as we taught that, there's no, uh, there's no probation status whereby we conditionally restore you and say, well, okay, you know, we'll let you attend church, but don't think that you'll ever be a pastor ever again. Okay? It says restore. What does it mean to restore? So the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. 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 That's probably easier. Irrevocable. Romans 11.29. What does Romans 11.29 say? 
Now, strictly speaking, this is not in a spiritual gift context. It's applied to Israel, first and foremost. We will apply a secondary principle from it. The um, Talking about Israel, don't think that God's done with Israel. Don't think that God has removed Israel's ministry. Israel has a ministry. It's presently on hold, but they will be restored to their ministry. They will be restored to their stewardship. Romans 11.25, I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of the mystery. What's the nature of this church age, this mystery doctrine of the church age? That it's simply an insertion. It's a parenthesis. It's an insertion that, that is injected within the stewardship of Israel. And if you have an open parenthesis, you've got to have a closed parenthesis, and let's move on back to what we were dealing with before. So that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so there is a future. Uh, we've got some Old Testament quotes there, we've got some Isaiah quotes. All right, verse 28, from the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. That's still valid. That's still binding. Every promise to the fathers still stands. Israel has a future. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. And so that's the principle. Okay, And the immediate context is an application to Israel and their national calling. But we can have secondary applications as well to our eternal life, to our salvation. This is a marvelous eternal security passage. If salvation is a gift, how can we lose it? It's irrevocable. Then, uh, then to our callings, okay? Irrevocable. And then it goes on to show um, the blessings. God will be bringing Israel back again. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. Verse 33, how unsearchable are His judgments and unfathomable His ways. God that put this plan into place is just incredible. We get little glimpses. We, what we glimpse, we realize that His ways are not our ways, nor are His thoughts our thoughts. You and I would give up on one another in a heartbeat. You and I would just throw in the towel. You and I would point to some failure and write them off. As a, as a failure, useless, okay? And God looks at the Apostle Paul and says, there's a man faithful for ministry. Isn't that amazing? All right. We may fail and be disqualified for a season. So when you look at 1 Timothy 1, when you look at, uh, that should be 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 13, when you look at these qualifications and disqualifications, Understand what they are. They are present tense character descriptions. So typo on the screen. Change that to to chapter 3, not chapter 1. It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. And so there are overseers within the local church. This is the we understand the elder overseer as it's written in our church constitution now. The gift is pastor teacher, but the office is overseer. An overseer then must be above reproach. And this is a present tense character description. It's not talking about what he used to be. It's talking about what he is now. Uh, A one woman man rendered the husband of one wife or a one-woman man. Temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine, or pugnacious. Okay, That means he's not a striker, he's not a fighter, he doesn't solve problems the way he wants to by punching somebody's lights out. Okay, That doesn't solve anything. Well, he can, but not for the pastor. Okay? That's not where he goes to resolve issues in the church. Um, what else? Not, um, we talked about not addicted to wine. And then again, that's present tense. Did he used to be a drunk? Back in his college days, was he a drunk? Is he, what is he now? 
All right, what is he now? Uh, peaceable, free from the love of money, must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. So uh, that's the perfect family, never had a problem. No, that's not what it is. <laughs> all right. Whatever it was, what is it now? And maybe, maybe he needs a break. Maybe he, he should not be in the ministry at this time for whatever reasons, for things that are going on in family. Okay, maybe he's got to walk away from it for a season, get his family taken care of. If a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And not a new convert, so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. Remember, so what we talk about, don't lay hands on a man too hastily. A guy that just got saved yesterday shouldn't be pastoring a church tomorrow. All right? Not a new convert, not a neophyte. Now, if he got saved yesterday, that means he got a spiritual gift yesterday, and that gift might be pastor-teacher. So he should begin training that gift as soon as he's convicted of it and as soon as he's able to start growing, which, which is day one. But he will not be entrusted to the office of overseer until he meets these uh, qualifications. And uh, he must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he will not fall into reproach in the snare of the devil. And so whatever his background is, if he was a whatever, a truck driver, uh, doctor, lawyer, jailer, soldier, whatever he was, okay, what was his reputation there? Was, was he any good at it? Was he respected? Was he ethical? Was he honest? Was he, uh, what, did, what did his peers think? What, uh, what's his reputation in the, in the community? You know, because, I mean, if he had a sneaky, kind of a, you know, underhanded, shady reputation in the community before as uh, whatever, business owner or whatever he was doing, um, you th- what's that going to do when he enters into a pulpit? <laughs> what's the impact there? Who's going to go to that church? Man, are you kidding me? This guy was the biggest snake in town. Anyway, there's a, an aspect there. So that's verses 1 through 7. It's not only the overseer ministry, you've got the deacon ministry as well. Verse 8, deacons, likewise must be. And so there's a, there's a likewise there, pay attention to that, because that likewise includes all of the verbiage from verse 1. It is a trustworthy statement, if any man aspires to the office of deacon, it is a fine work he desires to do, a deacon then must be... And then continue on now. Men of dignity, not double-tongued or addicted to much wine or fond of sordid gain. Present tense character descriptions. Okay, Not about their past, not about what they used to be. How are they walking? How are they exhibiting their faith today? Holding to um, the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. These men must also first be tested then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. That's different from the neophyte verse, isn't it? All right? You can be a deacon younger than you can be an overseer, spiritually younger. It doesn't use the same terminology about neophyte. It just says let them first be tested. Then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. You've got the opportunity there for deacon service. We have a pause in the deacons. We'll get to deacons again in verses 12 and 13, but we have the women deacons in verse 11. And a likewise. Again, that likewise is, is critical. Exegetically, you take it back to the likewise of verse uh, 8 and, the like, and back to verse 1. So it is a trust, uh, take all that verbiage from verse 1. It is a trustworthy statement. If any woman aspires to the office of deaconess, it is a fine work she desires to do. A deaconess then must be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. And so those are present tense character descriptions for women that would be considered to serve in the deacon office. The women deacon we call deaconesses. That parenthesis ends, we're back to deacons again, must be one woman man, good managers of their children and their own household, for those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence in the faith that is in 
Christ Jesus. Okay? And there you have it. And so these are the qualifications and the disqualifications. Yes, sir? Yes, uh, Titus, Titus chapter 1, which is parallel to 1 Timothy chapter 3. Educational uh, expectations that are listed there. First of all, was there anything in 1 Timothy 3 that you saw as educational? Was there anything that you saw in there related to their systematic theology or the Greek or the Hebrew exegesis? Or, no, that's all just character. Okay, Academics is above and beyond all of that. Titus chapter 1 um, Verses 5 and following, and particularly verse 9. So Titus 1, 5, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I had directed you. Okay, So this is not the office of overseer, but this is elders. And uh, not every elder is an overseer, but uh, many are. And so we understand the overlap. Namely, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. And now we have the overseer in verse 7. For the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not uh, quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled. Now in verse 9, so all of that's very similar to, to 1 Timothy 3. Verse 9 says, holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching. So this does approach academics. This does speak to what we talked about with the training of the gift. Um, so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. And so yes, to answer the question, um, beyond the issue of neophyte comes the grounding in, in a broad spectrum of theology in doctrine. Not only to know the true doctrine, you know, it's one thing to know for a fact that it's a pre-tribulational rapture, but how do you refute the mid-tribbers and the post-tribbers that you're going to encounter? How do you refute the uh, other theological systems that you don't hold to? You've settled your mind that you're neither a Calvinist nor an Arminian, but how do you answer both of those guys? Okay? Because the Calvinist will call you an Arminian and the Arminian will call you a Calvinist. So, how do you, are you solid enough not only for what you believe, but how do you answer for the things you don't accept? Okay, that's huge. And that's a part of the training. And, and the man that's not able to do that is, uh, is a man that's not ready to have hands laid on him yet in, uh, in that. So, all right, thank you for that. The, um, how did that get up there? Yes, there is a B, but we're not ready for B yet. The, um, we may fail and be disqualified for a season. So what happens then? What happens if you have an elder, you have an elder overseer, he's presently serving, but then he uh, enters into a stage in his life whereby his present character qualifications uh, no longer meet the requirements. Say, he used to be. He used to be the best pastor in town, but eh, what do you do? Well, He's not immune to discipline. He has to be addressed in that regard. In fact, um, he's not exempt, as it says in uh, 1 Timothy 5, uh, verse 19, do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. But if you've got those witnesses and the accusation's valid, what do you do with it? You proceed to administer the church discipline as appropriate to the pastor to the any elder overseer in the church. And those who continue in sin, that's huge too. Because when you go through the, the outline of Matthew 18, you go through the process on church discipline, anytime you're approaching somebody and you're laying the case for what it is, they have the repentance opportunity. You can win your brother. And the pastor is not, not only is he not immune to church discipline, he is not immune to legitimate repentance, <laughs> okay? Which all too many cases happens. Because all they have to do is prove that he committed a sin and then he's fired. 
But this verse says, those who continue in sin. Notice that? He's got the opportunity to stop continuing. (laughs) He's got the opportunity to say, you know what, you're right, I need help. You know what, you're right. This has to stop. Those who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all so that the rest also will be fearful of sinning. His fellow elders, his fellow overseers are going to recognize that uh, that uh, they also are accountable to Jesus Christ. So uh, we have that. If, he, if uh, an elder fails, is disqualified for a season, well, there you go. And he's not presently meeting those qualifications, well, then he may not presently be vested in that office. But does he lose his gift? Is he a leper outcast unclean for the rest of his life? No, because we go back to Romans eleven twenty nine 29 again. The gifts and calling are irrevocable. The gifts and calling are irrevocable. And, uh, and that's, to me, that's uh, a grace and a glory. So you take a season away. As I said, my childhood pastor did that for about five years until uh, there was uh, about a dozen people, 14 people that all said, hey, you know, we'd like you to be our pastor. We'd like you to teach the Bible. And they started a new church. And um, other illustrations of that, when a former pastor of this church left the ministry, he had a, an invitation to teach a Greek class. He had a, an invitation to go to another church. And uh, Glenn Carnegie brought him up to Tulsa and said, hey, you can be a part of, of Patrian. And we got some students and you can teach some Greek and you can teach some Hebrew. And, and uh, showed an awful lot of grace. Okay, because he has, still has a gift. And he needs a season, he needs to repent, he needs to recharge, he needs to, to learn. And, and hey, you know, plug in another church somewhere else, sit and listen for a while, be a, be a sheep instead of a shepherd, and, 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 uh, and watch how God works. Okay? All right. Restoration of such a one is always the objective. 2 Corinthians 2, verses 6 through 11. And we've taught this, we taught 1 Corinthians, we taught 2 Corinthians. We taught Galatians. You know, it seems to me that Jesus Christ is getting this concept across to this flock over and over and over and over again. Second Corinthians 2.6 says, Sufficient for such a one is this punishment which was inflicted by the majority. So when it accomplishes what it's designed to accomplish, you don't keep doing it. (laughs) The discipline ends when the repentance takes place. Sufficient. That's enough. Stop. You're going to keep stomping him when he's down? What are you going to do? So that on the contrary, you should rather forgive and comfort him. Otherwise, such a one might be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Wherefore, I urge you, reaffirm your love for him. And I love the fact that it says reaffirm because you affirmed your love for him the first time when you disciplined him. Recognize that? When you disciplined him and you removed him from office or kicked him out of the church or whatever you did, that was in love. And now when you restore such a one, that's also in love. And you get to reaffirm your love for him. Okay? It's not just... uh, pastors either, deacons, okay? We've publicly removed a deacon in this church and then publicly restored him. Because God's given us this doctrine again and again and again. So reaffirm your love for him. For to this end also I wrote that I might put you to the test whether you are obedient in all things. For the one whom you forgive anything, I forgive also. For indeed what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything... I did for your sakes in the presence of Christ so that no advantage will be taken of us by Satan for you're not ignorant of his schemes. This is a prime venue. Satan loves to attack churches through just this very thing. To find believers that are not gracious, that are not forgiving, that would not restore such a one. To find believers that are judgmental and condemning over failures of others. (laughs) Yeah, when Satan sees that, he just starts licking his chops. He knows that's, you know, he can work in that all day, every day finding judgmental believers that don't don't have grace and don't restore. Man, that's a playground for him. We don't uh, want to fall for that. 
All right, well, we'll have to come back to this on Wednesday, Lord willing and rapture pending. We'll finish the, the verses and the point there and the point A and we'll finish point B and then uh, we will be set for uh, the conclusion of this and move on to uh, the next paragraph of Philippians chapter 1. Father, I thank you for your truth. I thank you for this doctrine. And I, I do pray, Father, for brothers and sisters that are considering open doors and ministry fields. I do pray for Bob and Elvira as they've gone forth into their new ministry field. I just thank you for all of your grace. I thank you for the word of truth and the, the grace of God that uh, we can commend every believer to, uh, to these things as they step forth in faith in their ministry pursuits. We thank you, Father, and we praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.